Okay, welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. Uh, today we have a first on the podcast. Well, we have two firsts, I guess. Um, we have a lobbyist on today's episode, which is very interesting. Um, as an immigrant, I'm sure a lot of immigrants have like a certain impression about lobbyists, you know, coming to the U.S. and seeing that whole industry. Uh, but before we talk about that, this is your first time on the podcast. So welcome, Henry. Or I guess I should say Corky. <laughs> it's all right. Hey, no, so how are you? Good, good. And we're just talking before the show. And you said um, your wife only calls you Henry when you get in trouble. I thought that, that is was correct. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, Henry C. Kyle the Third. So is the C in your middle name Corky or is Corky just a... Corky's uh, a, a nickname. Corky's a nickname. The C is Charles. Oh, so Henry Charles Kyle the Third, aka right. Corky Kyle. Yeah. That's interesting. How do you get that name, Corky? Some aunt gave it to me when I was really tiny. Interesting. I guess she thought I was a corkster. Oh, okay. Got I don't it. know, Nosa. I don't know the story behind that, but that's what I got. You never asked her later, later in life to say, hey, you know, why no, do you ever this name, Corky? I can't. No, I didn't. <laughs> got it. Got it. And this is your first time on a podcast from what I understand, right? That's correct. Nice. How does it feel so far? No, how I can, love it. How can I, I make it. you more comfortable? But you had done radio in the past, right? That's correct. So how does this feel compared to radio? Oh, this is nice. This is nice. I like I, both mediums about getting the word out. Definitely. It's good. It's good. Yeah. I had, when I was doing my radio show, I had a little over 250,000 followers. It was an internet radio um, program. And it was all about uh, uh, the political process, lobbying, being involved. I, Interviewed all the legislators in Colorado. Every one of them? Every one of them. Interesting. You must have been really popular during election season, huh? <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Nice. Okay, so uh, I want to get into what it is you do. And just for context, uh, uh, Corky is the CEO or the president of the Cal Group. And the Cal Group is a, is a lobbying and advocacy group. Uh based in the state of Colorado. And from what I understand, um, your focus is on the state of Colorado. So let's peel back some of the layers here. So I'm an immigrant, right? I moved to the US six years ago, so not a long time, uh, but I've known about lobbying obviously from movies and you know, US elections, everyone focuses on US elections every four years and you get to know the players and the lobbying industry, uh, one of those players, uh, but for, People who haven't heard the term lobbying or lobbyist before, do you want to break that down a little bit? Who's a lobbyist? That's a really good question. There's lots of definitions. And basically, I would say that a lobbyist is an advocate for the people that he's working with to uh, influence the decisions of the legislature or other public policy officials and regulatory agencies. So basically we're an information merchant 
that presents the facts and figures on the issue that is affecting the client, whether pro or con. So we allow people access to the political process that they normally wouldn't have an opportunity to do if they were trying to do it on their own. We, um, we know the process. We know the rules. We have relationships. We've met and have talked to the legislators. And we have the ability to go ahead and get those ideas, perspectives, viewpoints in front of those policymakers when they're making public policy. So I think that's a pretty good definition for um, a professional lobbyist. Got it. Got it. And thank you for that definition. Uh, to drive it home, do you want to give a quick example? Maybe like a real life uh, case where you advocated on behalf of people to the legislator and maybe got some things changed? Um, sure. Um, one of the big issues that we had last legislative session back in January of this year was an issue concerning um, placement and referral agents. And real quick, what placement and referral agents are, they are professionals that help seniors find assisted living homes to move into when they make that decision that they wanna go there. And so they help them locate the appropriate facility. Will it meet their needs? Are they comfortable? Does it fit their budget? They do all those things. Well, there was legislation introduced to dismantle that ability and dismantle the law that had already been set up in the statutes that is called the Family Choice Act. And there was a group that was trying to disable that to allow them to own the name of the client for a number of years and that they could continue to go ahead and um, use their name and trying to locate places for them when they were already in a place. So long story short, um, I killed that bill. It died in committee. It was the sponsor of the bill was the person that asked the committee to kill the bill after he had gotten all this information from me, from the members of the association, and uh, it was sufficient enough to have him change his mind and not go forward with trying to dismantle that piece of legislation. I hope that wasn't too technical. I try to keep it simple. Not overly technical, but you have been doing this for like 30 plus years. So I'm sure this is like <laughs> second nature to you. Um, but let's go back a little bit. How did you, growing up, what did you set your sights on becoming initially? Uh, did you always know you wanted to be a lobbyist? Did you even know the lobbying industry existed? What was a teenage quirky uh, aspiring to uh, back in the day? Well, I can't say that I wanted to do this at an early age. One of the things that's in my constitution is that I did know that I wanted to be an influencer that I did want to have a say in what was going to happen to me. And the only way that happens is if you take the initiative, become a leader and 
and get involved in those uh, discussions so that you do have some say as to what the outcome was. So I knew I was, I was, had that bent. And my first experience came with lobbying um, was when I got out of graduate school and went to work for the Albuquerque Board of Realtors. And the executive vice president of the Albuquerque Board of Realtors um, lobbied the Albuquerque City Council on, on real estate issues, um, uh, codes, building permits, all that stuff. And I watched him. And that really sparked my interest. And then I took a job up here in Denver as the executive vice president of the Albuquerque, of the um, uh, Independent Insurance Agents of Colorado. And part of my job was to go ahead and lobby the legislature. And that's how I got started. Got it. Back in 1981. Oh, wow. That was uh, way before I was born, even. So <laughs> you've been doing this for you've been doing this for quite a minute. Uh, but you mentioned something there. So you, you said you, you, you went to grad school. So obviously you went to undergrad, you went to grad school. What did you study? You said you were introduced into lobbying after grad school. So what were you studying um, during undergrad? Um, and what did you think you wanted to become while you were in undergrad? Were you like maybe wanting to become a lawyer before you ran into the lobbying industry? Uh, just for a little bit of context there. Um, yeah, I uh, my uh, major in undergrad school was political science. Mm. So yes, I was leaning that way at that time. And my first it's funny you brought that up, but I was very interested and wanted to become a lawyer. And uh, unfortunately, I uh, that didn't happen. Just it just didn't happen. Um, and then I went to grad school and I got a master's in public administration. So I thought that that would tie in with the political science because there I'd be working in the public sector and knew about the political process which is which the public sector is very political mm -hmm. and so um i went ahead and and um got that degree from the university of new mexico and uh i did an internship with the city of albuquerque and after i did that internship that uh that totally uh, changed my perspective. I realized I really didn't want to work in the public sector. Why is that? I, it's just a lot of mumbo jumbo. <laughs> it's a lot about of, it. <laughs> a, a, that's a technical term now, Nosa. Right. And I'm being nice. Uh, it just didn't fit my personality in keeping with what I had shared earlier about I want to be involved. I want to be a decision maker. And Working in the public sector, there's not a lot of room for that kind of uh, uh, direction, let's say. Mm -hmm. A lot, lot the, of talk, no action. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to be the master of my own fate. So I went into the private sector and didn't look back. 
That makes sense. That that makes sense. And and you know, kudos for you for recognizing that as well. Cause some people just get trapped and you know, just told this 30-year career doing something that maybe they're not supposed to do. Um, right. you, also, you also mentioned something else. You used the term influencer. And you you having graduated in 1981, I'm sure it meant something totally different back then. Today, if you talk about influencer, you're talking TikTok and Instagram. What were some of the ways that you you feel um made you consider yourself an influencer or wanting to influence back in the day? Like, were you president of student clubs? Did you demonstrate when you were younger? Like, how did that manifest in a younger Corky? Um, that, that's a really good question there. Um, once I became the executive director of the Independent Insurance Agents of Colorado, just by the nature of my position as being the executive vice president, the organization had 3,500 members in it, and it represented all the property and casualty insurance agents in the state. So I was busy working the insurance division, as well as working the, the Colorado legislature on agent issues. Um, and when you say working, sorry to cut you short, when you say working, what does that mean? What does that entail? Well, that means getting in front of those policymakers, talking about what the issues were that the agents had and how the uh, business was being influenced or not influenced and that type of thing. I got very involved in my professional society, the Colorado Society of Association Execs, when I first moved up here in 1981. And I'm still a member of that organization. I'm a past president. They made me an honorary member here a couple of years back for some work that I had done for them. I've done everything within that association. So just by the sheer amount of involvement, and I will, I would underline that, is that if anybody wants to become an influencer, and maybe we have to use a different term because um, you're right, it means TikTok and stuff this <laughs> these days. Right. Back then, it meant that you had the relationships and were recognized as a leader within the community mm. uh, by virtue of being at, at functions, going to meetings, going to conferences, participating in committees, doing the work, just being out there, being seen. And so, um, yeah, over the years, I, I've... You build up a uh, reputation and people recognize you. I, I, to this day, it still amazes me. I've had people come up to me and say, and, and introduce themselves and say, I, geez, I heard about you years ago. Mm -hmm. And I don't know this person. Get, I mean, <laughs> this is, this is the first time we've met. Right. Just by and, the, the um, share work you've done over the years and, and the things you've been just by in. word of mouth. Mm. Makes sense. Right. And then so, I did other things like I we were sharing was, you know, I took the initiative to get create a radio show. I always wanted to do that. And I went ahead and did it. I created a newsletter for all my clients that I had when I was that while I was lobbying that would uh, put out uh, once a quarter. So they knew what was going on and uh, and talking about uh the process and and the legislators and this type of thing again putting myself out there so that people saw 
that I was involved. I was connected. I, uh, what I stood for. And um, that's how you build your, that's how you build your capital. And uh, your, um, what am I looking for here? Your, uh, your posana that people learn about. Got it. Got it. No, totally understand. Totally understand that. Um, so you didn't start off straight out of school like most lawyers or some lawyers would do and just start their own firms or some some lobbyists would do. You, you work for all these organizations, whether it's insurers or real estate, um, the real estate industry. When did you come to that realization that, hey, I want to set up my own firm to advocate on behalf of other people instead of working in the uh in in other organizations that's that's i'm really glad you asked that i had been working for the independent insurance agents uh, of colorado for 12 years and they decided they wanted to go ahead and have a new leader <laughs> and so i my contract was not renewed but prior to that, about a year before, I had met a, a woman um, who was a lobbyist, and I helped her get a client or something. She called me, and I said, you might want to talk to these people. Anyway, long story short, she got the client, and then she uh, we got together and uh, started talking. She said, you know, if you ever want to do this... Um, let me know. Maybe we could get together. Mm. So when they didn't renew the contract and I left the independent insurance agents of Colorado, um, that's when I went to this very nice woman and uh, we started the uh, McAvoy Kyle lobbying firm. And that's how I got to be self-employed and um, really out on my own. Mm. And you just touched on something really important there. I know this is not a business episode, but you know, um, you, you, you just, I, I had been reading about this uh, a couple of years ago and you know, uh, most people nowadays, when they want to start a business, they they start in reverse. They come up with a name, they come up with a, a a website, a logo before they even have like a business or a service they're offering. And and I guess you did it the reverse way. You kind of like offer the service to someone before you even started the business. And that person said, "Oh, and you know what? If you ever think about going into this, uh, you should maybe come talk to me." And you know, just like I want to set up a, a car. Uh, washing business or something, you know, go to a neighbor and try to wash his car or her car and learn a thing or two before you even come up with a name and other branding stuff for your group. Um, but you said, you mentioned the name for your earlier company. Um, that's not the same name, your company. You're, so you currently are the president of the Kyle Hayes group. Um, so was there some iteration, maybe a partner left or or oh, you started a different company. What's the story there? No, 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 no. Um, my partner, Jean, she and I were together, had our firm the, the uh, for 12 years. And then she decided she wanted to go a different way. And 
when you have one partner that doesn't want to keep doing what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you part ways. But the point I want to make before we go on into that in depth is that I would encourage anybody who wants to have their own business to do it. I mean, it's a wonderful experience, but you touched on it, Nosa. Try it out first before you start sinking all your money in it and try to find out if you really like it. I'd been lobbying with the um, independent, well, with the Albuquerque Board of Realtors for a couple of years. I had really got my training when I did the Independent Insurance Agents of Colorado. I had 12 years there experience. Mm-hmm. So I had already identified what I wanted to do. And I had the skills and experience to make my chances of success better than most. And so as a result of that, that's why that works so well. Makes and sense. And then getting together with Gene. And like I said, after 12 years, Gene wanted to do something else. And I said, okay, that's fine. And then we split and uh, I went out on my own. Got it. Got it. And just for context, for people who are still trying to get a sense of the industry, can you paint a picture of the lobbying industry? So lobbying firms, uh, when I'm comparing it to other industries, maybe like our architectural firms or, or law firms, do you have certain specializations per firm? Do you specialize in a certain like geography? Maybe you're lobbying within the state or you're going federal. How many partners are in typically a lobbying firm and what is the day-to-day in a lobbying firm look like? I know that's a lot of questions, but I just want to paint a, a broad picture for our listeners well, here. Guide me as we go through those questions or remind me. Mm-hmm. Starting from the industry, like what do, do lobbying firms typically specialize and what does it take to set up a lobbying firm? Do you have, need to be licensed? Like what is the typical structure? Well, if you make the decision, number one, you don't have to have an attorney's degree or you don't have to even have a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're good with people, if you like talking to people, if you have very thick skin and can laugh at yourself um, and don't take offense, anybody can do this job. But I shouldn't say anybody. I'm saying there's an opportunity there. If you can meet those minimum standards, you can give it a go because it is very, very hard to get into. People in this particular industry um, focus on a lot of different avenues within the political process. Some lobbying firms are just democratic lobbying firms. They only work with the Democrats. Some are Republican. They only work with the Republicans. Some are lobbying firms that go across the aisle and work with both parties because they're representing the client and they want to get the issue out there in front of everybody. Some firms specialize in certain um, industries. Some may specialize in senior care, um, senior law. Some might specialize in construction. 
Some might do housing, uh, apartments. I mean, everything is so diverse. Everything is controlled mm -hmm. by the policy that's created by the elected officials that you have a multitude of industries and associations and involved in this process. So you can be a generalist or you can be a specialist. But if you, when you're getting into it, it's extremely difficult to build up those relationships with the legislators. I will tell you when I first started in 81 with the Independent Insurance Agents of Colorado, it took me almost two years till I could feel comfortable walking in the building and doing what I need to do. Mm. And now it's second nature. I mean, it's like my office away from home, you know? Right. And, uh, uh, and I built those relationships and everything. So when you're building this business, your best bet is if you, if you really wanted to get into this was to try to find a lobbying firm that would go ahead and bring you on. And basically what they're looking at is probably a college graduate, good writing skills, good communication skills, um, critical thinking, um, very good persona, good personality, um, can talk well, think on their feet, um, start to begin to understand what's in the statute books in the area in which they're focused. And, um, and then gain the experience. And that way you're not so much, it'd be tough to go out on your own if you had no experience whatsoever and you were trying to do it, you'd starve. Right. So what's a typical for someone who wants to get into a lobbying firm to be brought on, to be trained? Um, what is a typical structure? Is it like managing partner, associate, senior partner? Or how, no, they'd be, they, they would be an associate. Okay. And they'd be, it, it's very similar to a law firm. Okay. You have, uh, you have the partners, the owners, and then you have the associates. Everybody's responsible for various clients that were with the firm, but also everybody's responsible for bringing in new clients. And the compensation is, is based upon what the people bring into the firm. And so um, that's pretty much what the structure is. A lot of independent contractors. There's a lot of um, single lobbyists out there that do have some specialized clients that they make a very good living with. And then there's other firms that have got 20, 30 clients on there that they're working. And then everything in between. Got it. Got it. And, and just for most of our listeners are just by the sheer nature of this podcast, right? Most of our listeners, I can probably say are minorities, right? So people, immigrants, people from other parts of the world, um, the, the, the lobbying industry, at least anecdotally, um, from what I can see from the outside looking in, doesn't seem very diverse, even though uh, minorities need as, as much uh, lobbying influence as, you know, you know, Wall Street and industries, because, you know, they have issues that they want to address too. How do minorities like, um, what superpower would you say minorities might have 
that can make them stand out for someone who wants to pursue a career in lobbying. Um, just from your share experience, uh, if you want to give out one or two pointers uh, for that. Well, like I said earlier, the, the business is wide open. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. who you are. You can start it. You can get in it. And I encourage everybody to get in it because if we don't have that participation, then the democracy, the democracy then is not complete because all perspectives, all viewpoints, all ideas need to be put out in the open and discussed and then let everybody decide what which way they want to go. Now, there are, uh, um, you bring up a very good point. I think because lobbying is so unique, I mean, until you heard my presentation at A Million Cups, you really didn't think about lobbyists or really didn't think about the, <laughs> what's going on under the gold dome. Right. You, you, you were focused on other things. And this is something that people don't focus on very much. They should. They ought to be, they ought to know their legislator like their best buddy, like their poker buddy or their bike riding buddy or anything else. But nobody does, which creates this lobbying core that is very unique. But are there any barriers? Are there any um, uh, hurdles that you have to overcome? Right. The hurdles you have to overcome is getting involved and being tenacious in the way in which you build those relationships that you need to function within the arena. So getting getting um, exposed to you know the legislator, the industry, uh, and and that's pretty interesting because it's like anything, right? Like if I buy a car. Typically, if I buy a property, I should know how to fix that prop property. Uh, I should not repair a car, but because I didn't spend the time to learn how to repair a car, I have to go through an intermediary, a mechanic who understands how to repair a car. So I should have that direct relationship with my legislator or, or, or you know, whoever. But because I haven't, like, maybe I don't understand the laws or procedures, then maybe a, a lobbyist uh, who's a specialist uh, in that industry is kind of like the best bet. Um, so I guess uh, being exposed is kind of one. And maybe this is where, you know, minorities tend not to, um, because that exposure is just not there, right? Um, it's, it's not there deliberately to say, hey, you know, you really, there are really avenues for you to advocate on things. Most people only consider lobbyists when they get to a certain economic status and, you know, maybe there's money involved and, you know, they want their business to, to succeed and then they tend to, you know, hire lobbyists. But for people who are just like trying to get by day to day, obviously they can still use a lobbyist in some form or fashion, but they see that, oh, I'm still trying to you know, pay my rent. Like, why should I even like think about, you know, a well, lobbyist? Yeah, I mean, you have, to, yeah, you have to have the basics taken care of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I was worried about whether or not I was going to make my house payment. Right. Or yeah. if uh, I needed the car fixed. But what I tell people, I do, I go around the country doing government relations training with associations, setting up their programs and so on. But what I tell them is, is that um, the legislature controls the quality of your life 
and the health of your business. Facts. And just like you said about the mechanic, you should, you know, you know your doctor, you know your banker, um, know your mechanic, know your, no, I mean, those people that provide specialized services, why in the heck don't you know your legislator as well as you know those people? Because you're the one through your vote who put them in office. Or true, you're and, not voting. Or not voting. Yes. Right. Yes, very much so. Right. So well, that you need to know everybody in this, everyone in the country can register to vote. Everybody can declare what party affiliation they want. Or well, don't not, not everybody can register to vote, but I get what you're saying. Well, if you're a citizen, you can vote. Well, if you're not incarcerated or if you don't have an incarceration record, I guess. Well, yes, there are limitations. Absolutely. Right. But that's another story for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, I get you. Let me, again, you know, me outside looking in, um, my interaction with the industry is through, you know, movies, media, you know, popular stories. Let me throw some questions at you and, and see if maybe you can support or dispel popular notions about lobbyists. Uh, let me see. And this is all from like movies I've watched and things like that. Uh, so let's see here. Um, Fire so away. Do you have to have gone to, or, or do you have to, do you need to have an Ivy League education to be a lobbyist? No. No. Okay. Interesting. It uh, certainly helps. I mean, to just have an education helps. Right. It doesn't have to be Ivy League. I mean, you can be a high school graduate and get into this business. You can be a dropout. You can get into this business. It's all what's inside of you. Got it. No, makes sense. Makes total sense. Um, are lobbyists as powerful as the industry they represent, like the tobacco lobby or the healthcare lobby? Like the more powerful the industry, the more powerful the lobbyists. Is that typically the scenario in real life as well? Well, you're going to have to go a little bit deeper with that. By powerful, what do you mean? I mean, influence, like the level of influence a lobbyist has is dependent, highly dependent on the industry they represent. So the healthcare industry in the U.S. or the pharmaceutical industry, to be very specific, it's a very powerful <laughs> industry, a lot of money, a lot of influence. So lobbyists who represent the pharmaceutical companies tend to be more powerful than lobbies who represent other industries, for instance. Is that an accurate take? In well, I, don't know that I, I don't know that I would say powerful but the, uh, than other different lobbies. If we're talking on the federal level, oh, yeah, that's all the major level. all the major corporations, yes, they're involved. They have to be. They have to be. They have to control their own destiny. They have to have a say in what's going to happen to them. And so um, those firms that represent those big corporations and everything, uh, will legislators see them on the federal level? Absolutely, they will. Absolutely, they will. But does it mean that they have control over the decision-making that the individual does when he votes on a bill? Well, if their argument's good enough, and if the facts are good enough, and if they've laid it all out, both the pros and the cons, and then they vote the way that they wanted to hope that they would vote, then they've done their job. 
they've exerted influence, but they've given the legislator the information for them to go ahead and make their own decision as to how they're going to vote. Okay. Okay. Now, on the state level, there are big, there are several big lobbying firms here that represent um, um, large corporations or or businesses. And the same thing would apply is that, uh, number one, the legislators want to know what these people do, what the companies do, and how the public policy that they're going to set up would affect them if they were going to do anything. So, yes, there would be direct uh, access for those people to go ahead and talk to those people. But the interesting thing on the state level, at least here in Colorado, and notice I got to put a little disclaimer in here. I'm only familiar with the Colorado legislature. Got it. I haven't worked in any other um, state in the state legislature. But I do know that Colorado's legislature is very, very open. Anybody can talk to their legislator. You can go visit with them for the most part anytime you want to after you set up an appointment. The policymakers are very accessible to the constituents that they represent. And so, I mean, even a single person um, let's say they were making a law on podcasts and you didn't like it or you did like it. It doesn't matter which one, mm -hmm. but wherever you live, you need, you would need to find out who your representative was and who your Senator was. And you could pick up the phone or send a text or email and contact them and set up the time when you could visit with them or, you could write to them and send them that, and you'd get a response. And so um, Colorado is very fortunate in that we have such a such a good legislature for accessibility. Got it. Got it. Okay, I have two more things for you to dispel or support. Go ahead. Do, do all lobbies smoke cigars? Or is, is that just a... <laughs> Every lobbyist I've seen or interacted with in the media, they tend to smoke cigars. So, uh, uh, I obviously you see, I smoke cigars. Mm -hmm. I smoke cigars for a long time. Uh, no, I think that's just a personal choice. I think it's also a little bit of symbolism there mm. as to power, influence. Um, that type of thing. And, you know, we're all showmen. Right. And uh, I'm sure there's some that don't, wouldn't touch tobacco. But this is, this and having a scotch every now and then is my only vice. Mm. So I think I'm okay. Yeah, definitely. So not a requirement to be an associate, definitely. So. <laughs> no, not a requirement. <laughs> It'd be helpful, but no. Right. And do you know what's funny? Uh, for uh, I was watching this documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger and Governor Schwarzenegger when he was a governor in California. Apparently, he had this cigar tent in the state capitol where he'll bring uh, legislators and other public officials mm -hmm. to like have a smoke and like iron out issues outside of the chamber. And that mm -hmm. was his own way of like kind of like influencing. Pretty interesting tactic, but. Uh, 
what better way to do it? All right. When people are relaxed and you can talk um, as colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, I thought it was, I, I watched the same documentary. Did you notice the part two that he takes his cigar and dips it in whiskey? Oh, and I didn't see that part. That was at the end. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> and he's a big cigar smoker, as you well are aware. Right. And, um, but no, you know, public policy, it requires the people that are elected to listen to everybody's side. Now, they do have predisposed dispositions of their own influence. And they may feel passionate, but they need to represent the district in which they're in. Mm-hmm. And their district may want them to vote on things that there may be some conflict with that individual, with the legislator. But right. that's part of the legislator's job is, is you've got to balance out those things so that you're doing, uh, you know, you're representing your constituents. Got it. Got it. What is your go-to cigar brand? <laughs> uh, it is Fresco. Fresco. Fresco 23. Where's that from? What country? Uh, I'm going to say Nicaragua. Ah, uh, got it. Well, I don't, I don't smoke a lot of cigars, but something I've been thinking about that. Huh, I wonder when I'll start smoking cigars and playing golf. But um. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, no. Tell me when you want to go. We'll go down to the Brown Palace and we'll have a smoke and a, and a, a drink. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll t- definitely take you up on that. Uh, it has to be during Novice Rookie Night, though. So none of the... <laughs> I'll just come and, and ease into it. Um, so, so the last notion I think I want you to dispel, do lobbyists, and, and this is me talking from the federal lobbyist level, because I used to live in Washington, D.C., right? So I, I knew one or two federal lobbyists. Uh, do lobbyists make campaign contributions to legislators during election campaigns? Absolutely. Ah. And that's all regulated by the federal Oh, great. What the heck is it? It's not the Federal Trade Commission. It's the federal. Well, anyway, there's a there's a there's a de- department that regulates uh, the campaign contributions and the filings and all this stuff. So it is regulated as to the amount and everything that you can go ahead and give. Mm hmm. And same thing on the state level. It's all regulated. And um, one of the questions I don't think I answered for you was, do you need a license or anything like that? But all lobbyists have to register with the Colorado Secretary of State. Is that just a standard business registration or separate lobbying registration? Well, it's a separate lobbying registration. Got it. And then the, the lobbyists have to file reports every month with the Secretary of State. Every so month, not every, every year. Month. Oh, wow. No, every month. Oh, wow. We do that. And that's, we tell them what, you know, we tell them how much we make. We tell them what, what uh, bills we're working on. We tell them who our clients are. 
So if anybody ever wanted to know, I mean, you can go into the Secretary of State's office, go to the Kyle Hayes group, and you can see all the clients we represent and the amount of money we make. It's full disclosure. public. Interesting. And it's every month, so it's up to date. Like, you can see the last 30 days uh, pretty much. We have to file by the 15th of every month. Interesting. That must be a lot of paperwork. How, how do you guys do that? I just this is no, just we just do it online. Thinking. It's pretty online. Oh, okay. Yeah, just go online and it's pretty quick. Okay, so but if you leave a client out or you leave a number out, are you audited every year or something to make sure that? Oh, sometimes sometimes you get audited, but right. But like I, you know, the lobbying core here in Colorado is pretty good. There, it's a good bunch of people. And they do a great job for their clients and for the state. And um, so, yeah, but you can go in there and see it. It's fully, it's all open. And you can go in there and see who's contributed money to all the legislators. So you can find out if uh, the Colorado Chamber of Commerce donated 400 bucks to Governor Polis. You can go Interesting. see, go through their whole uh, list. You can see it all. It's there. Interesting. And what? so it, you can see who the influencers are and using that term again. And uh, those that contribute, the amount that they contribute, the, fre- the frequency of their contributions. Right. Um, and again, there are limits. And those are all on the Secretary of State's website. Okay, so so it's a lot organized, and and this is people have a lot of criti- criticism for for this, right? Because um, they say, oh, this is akin to to bribery. Why should you be able to contribute money to people whose decision you're trying to influence? Like, if I'm trying to influence uh, my sister to go to a certain university, for instance, and I say, hey, I'm going to pay your tuition if you go to this university against that university, she's more likely to go to this university. So there's an ethical concern, and I guess that's why some outsiders might not really appreciate the lobbying industry. So what is your take on that for people who say, like, is this not akin to, like, bribery or some kind of corruption that being organized and reporting every month doesn't make any different than, you know, countries where brown paper envelopes and Ganamos go bags and cash are exchanging hands and whatnot? So what's your take on that? Well, those days are gone where the brown envelopes were and everything. First of all, you got to stop and think. So, no, say you decide that you're going to run for the state rep seat for where you live. Okay. And so you're going to go ahead and go file your paperwork at the Secretary of State because that's how you got to do it. You declare your candidacy for what position. And then you, um, and then you have to report, I think it's every quarter on your fundraising activities. And, um, but when you stop and think about what a campaign costs, you don't have that kind of money. Most people don't. Mm-hmm. So you've got to go out and raise funds. And so you are giving speeches, you're going out and visiting with groups, you're asking people to do fundraisers for you, 
you're asking people to uh, make contributions and you're just out there campaigning because the cost of of radio, the cost of TV, the cost of print media, the cost of campaign materials, staffing, um, all those things associated, telephones, all that, that costs money. And um, I haven't heard what the latest numbers are, but for a state seat, it's almost $200,000 that you've got to raise to go ahead and do a, a, a organized campaign. For a state seat. For a state seat. Mm. And for example, well, the Secretary of State race this last go around, she raised almost a million dollars. Well, oh, I thought the Secretary of State was a appointed position. Is it an elected position? It's it's elected position. Interesting. I didn't even know that. Okay. So I guess the point I'm trying to share with you is it's not bribery or anything. It's you're supporting the candidate that you want to win. Yeah, but I mean, and, you're supporting the candidate. And I know I understand the candidates need money, but they raise money from the electorate. They raise money from the public. Like, what is the percentage? Except you're saying without lobbying money, and that's a different conversation that the majority of campaign funds are coming from lobbyists. But what's if, if the lobbies, the funds, the contributions from lobbyists are... 2% of total contributions, say nationwide, do we really need money from the lobbies? Because these people, after they're elected, are going to be coming back to say, hey, I remember I donated to you, do I remember I donated to you? Or are you just saying lobbyists are citizens too and deserve that right to contribute as well as every other citizen out there? Totally. Totally. To your second answer. Mm. Now, is there corruption? Yes. Is there... Are there bad people out there that are looking to do bad things? Yes. But that's it's very minuscule. But you've got that in anything that you do. There's always a bad apple. We yeah, Human beings are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And um, It's an open process. It's another way in which citizens get involved with exercising their their um, right to vote as well as their right to influence, free speech, you name it. So what is the cap for Colorado on campaign contributions by lobbying firms? I knew you were going to ask me that. Of course I have to. <laughs> and unfortunately, I don't know them. I should have looked that up. I think it is for a legislator, for a rep or a Senate, is $400 per person per cycle. $400 per person per cycle. So you can technically donate to all the legis legislators 400 times the number of legislators. But people always find ways to bend the rules, right? We hear of super PACs at the federal level. Where right, but they're limited, but they're limited to certain amounts, too, that they can give to the, to the candidates. Super parks are. Yes. What is that limit? I'm sure it's in the millions. Well, the limit's or hundreds the same of thousands. thing. We use we use right. the state thing again. It's four hundred bucks. Four hundred bucks. So how do these candidates end up getting money from these groups? There's some weird thing going on in campaign financing where people end up get up get it hundreds of thousands and even millions of dollars, even though the limit is technically four hundred dollars. So how does that happen? 
Well, that probably happens through fundraising. You might have a fundraiser where you have a big dinner or something, $1,000 plate dinner. Mm. Okay. And you do fundraising in that particular. So that is not classified campaign contribution like that's not an individual contribution i see so if a company buys a thousand plates at a thousand dollar dinner that's a million dollars that's that is correct interesting okay but a company's not going to do that i mean they might buy a table or two but that's it right and but then like i've done fundraisers for legislators and um I have my clients come and I tell them all, you know, this is a fundraiser, give whatever you can give. But even if it's 25 bucks, that'll work. And the majority of the campaign contributions from individuals on the state level are 25 bucks. And you just have to get a lot of those, which makes fundraising extremely difficult. And you can check that out on the Secretary of State's websites you can see what the average size of the contribution is got it okay makes sense so it's very very open and um it allows you and me that if we want to give them some money to help them out we can i mean as we start to wind down here i want to touch a little bit on your specific experience so you've had such an illustrious career over you know going on four decades now or even more um, what's one bill or one issue? And then, you know, let's try to make this as digestible as possible. I know you did, you, you worked on some gambling stuff recently. Uh, what's one thing over your career that you can say, oh, it really had a major impact on a lot of people in the state and was a win that you celebrate till today? Something that people can relate to. All right. My shining star, one of the best accomplishments for personal accomplishments for me, but also one of the best things that ever happened to Colorado was changing in contracts with general contractors and their subcontractors. Now, a general contractor is the guy that oversees the construction job this is the construction industry this is the construction industry got it and so the general contractor manages the electricians the drywallers the excavators the plumbers the roofers the painters the uh, carpenters all those people and all those people are subcontractors to that gc And there was a time that when the job was being developed, that in the contract it said that all subcontractors would be responsible for everybody's mistakes. So what does that mean? It means let's take, for example, the roofer puts the roof on, but he didn't do it properly and there's a leak and there's uh, damage. Well, it wasn't up to the GC to pay for that damage. It was for all of the subcontractors to pay for that mistake that that roofer made. Mm -hmm. Even though a plumber didn't put the roof on, the electrician didn't put the roof on. 
So after a four-year campaign, I passed a bill that said that the subcontractor can only be responsible for his own negligence. Mm. So that meant that the roofer who put the roof on incorrectly was responsible for making the correction, not the plumber. Got it. Pipes failed. It wasn't the excavator that paid for the pipes failing. It was a plumber. And so that was huge. That changed construction contracts totally. I can imagine. And that was done 10 years ago. And it hasn't changed. Nobody's attempted to change it back. Wow. I can see how that can lead to some a lot of arbitration, depending on how big the project is actually to determine who's at fault and whatnot. But that that's pretty that's a pretty interesting because um I guess insurance rates will go down for subcontractors because of that. And you know you hit it that you hit the nail right on the head. Because prior to that time, insurance companies were not insuring. Ah, they weren't even insuring at all. They weren't, or they were exorbitant premiums. Ah. And so we reduced the cost of construction by doing that. We uh, opened up the market more so that there are more companies, which then there was more competition for their insurance dollars. So that would lower premiums. Mm -hmm. And everybody knew who was going to be responsible for what. So it made for... Uh, a better quality of work right so yeah that but i have to tell you the rest of that story because it this is, makes it even more interesting please the very this my uh client was the american subcontractors association of colorado we initiated the legislation the very first year we got it introduced it went to committee and it was killed in committee the next year we submitted again, it passed out of committee, it passed out of the uh, Senate, passed out of the House, and it went to the governor. And the governor vetoed it. The next year we introduced it again, it got to the governor again, and he vetoed it. Mm. We introduced it the next year. And that year went all the way through. We had a new governor, and that governor signed the bill. Ah, so that was a very, uh, it was a very difficult campaign to say the least. For um, four I'm very years, proud of that. very proud of that. Yeah, you you should be proud. Four years is also a long time. Is is that a standard? Uh cycle for some of your campaigns that you do that long four years no um that was the longest one i've ever had i've had some that have taken two years but then i've also had them when we get it squared away in the first year but i will tell you something here that again a little bit of procedural knowledge For the most part, anybody who introduces legislation for the very first time in their first session, 
they'll lose it. That's and the reason they lose it is because they didn't do the homework. They didn't do the outreach. They didn't build the top of mind awareness that the legislators needed to have to understand the issue sufficiently to change their position. Keep in mind, the legislature likes status quo. Any changes to the status quo, you better have your arguments right. You better have the work done. You better have your argument well um, laid out because what you're trying to do is change the status quo. And you and I both know that changing the status quo when people are feeling real comfortable with that particular arrangement, it's tough to change their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally understand. Do, do lobbyists focus exclusively on the legislator or the legislative arm of government so it's not possible to influence, say, the governor or some other executive branch officials or probably not the judiciary, hope not, but <laughs> the executive branch um, lobbyists focus on the legislative branch okay. and the executive branch. You don't fiddle with the judiciary. Oh, so lobbies also focus on the executive branch as well. Well, uh, of course, because it's the governor who has the ultimate say when the bill ends up on his desk. Desk. Interesting. The governor can do three things. He can let it become law without his signature. He can veto it or he can go ahead and sign it. So you wanna keep the executive branch informed of what you're doing mm. because ultimately it's in his hands. Interesting. And, and this is the same at the federal level with the president as well? I would imagine so, yes. Interesting, interesting. It's all about communication and getting the word out and working uh, the legislators and finding the, um, the you know, the, the um, uh, pivotal people that have influence over other legislators. Right. Um, to get the word out. I mean, it's a lot of work. People think that we just go up there and, and smoke cigars and pick people <laughs> out and all that other stuff. And right. right, we can't right. Even, and, and we can't do that in Colorado. So. Right. Oh, you can't take, you can't buy people dinners in, in Colorado. No, there's an amendment see. 41 that was put to the constitution that says we can't do anything for a legislator. We can't even buy him a Coke. Interesting. Um, so again, it means you better have your arguments straight. You better have your membership all fired up and knowledgeable about the, uh, about the issue and work with other groups that might have similar interests so that there's a large body of the electorate that's supporting your piece of legislation. And is this how laws get combined? Uh, and when I say laws getting combined, because, you know, infrastructure bill, classic example, <laughs> like it's supposed to be called the infrastructure bill, which, which should be self-explanatory, right? Well, the government was planning to revamp the infrastructure, but you, you because of all these groups that, 
came together to make it happen, then you start having definitions like human infrastructure and different things. So they were adding some healthcare stuff in there and calling it infrastructure, the things like that. Are things like that commonplace in lobbying as well? Well, the rule in the legislature for a piece of legislation is it has to be single issue. So it can't be a bill that's got multiple things in it. It's got to be single issue. So I guess it depends on the definition of what the issue is. If you can define it properly, then it can be an issue. Oh, absolutely. Let's say we had a bill that said um, reforming the healthcare industry in Colorado. Now, that's a pretty broad title. That could mean anything. Mm. But if we said reducing the residential property tax 5%, that's very specific. Mm. So you couldn't put other things in there. And that's one of the strategies when you run legislation is you make the title as specific as possible so it doesn't become like a Christmas tree and everybody's starting to hang stuff on it. Got it. No, I can I can definitely see how, you know, you just don't go up there and buy lunches and shake hands because, you know, there's so much documentation. Some of these bills are hundreds and hundreds of pages. And, you know, like you said, being top of mind so your bill doesn't get denied at a second attempt and, and whatnot is just is a whole different level of expertise. So uh, obviously you being having done this for like four decades, you, you've built up that expertise over time. Um, what is on the, well, before I ask what's on the table for you currently, what is it? Let me talk a little bit about money. And, and you said all this information is public. Like anyone can find this out. How are lobbyists paid? Are you paid a retainer? Is it, does it depend on whether you get a success or not? And what's the specific amount for your company? How do you typically charge your clients, uh, since this is all public knowledge? Well, first off, right off the bat is that you can't reward lobbyists uh, for their success. Mm. That's against the law. So um, we don't get a bonus at the end or anything like that, okay? It's illegal. So that doesn't happen. There's lots of different ways in which people go ahead and price their services. Some do an hourly rate. Some do a flat fee plus expenses. Some do a, a fee all-inclusive expenses. And that particular fee is predicated upon the complexity of the issue. What is it going to take to get this to from point A to point B? And so then you generate you, you know, you got to work all those things in there. How much staff time, how much um, travel time? I mean, it's, it, it, there's a lot of different things, the overhead of the office so that it can be anywhere. I mean, I've done issues for clients for um, uh, 5,000 bucks. I've also done issues that were for 75,000. So it's all over the gamut. It's very, it's very capitalistic. And um, 
It's not controlled. It's not regulated. Mm-hmm. God forbid. Because <laughs> nothing would get done then. Right. But anyway, did uh, that answer your question? No, no, that makes sense. Uh, that it does depends on the resources. So almost like a law firm. I, I hate to keep, you know, tying this back to the legal industry, no, but true. that's just my point of reference. So depending on your your the resources you expend, then you pass that on to the client, and then you have like a margin there. Okay, pretty interesting. Yep. yep. What's one issue? I mean, uh, you're on our podcast. Uh, I don't know how many people in Colorado actually listen to this, but just put something you're currently working on that you maybe like some support on. Um, what's one thing that you can put out there that you're currently trying to change? Uh, one leg- piece of legislator you're trying to change right now? We have coming up in this legislative session a sunset bill for charitable gaming in Colorado. Sorry, say say that again. We have a sunset bill that's going to be introduced in the next legislative session for charitable gaming. That is charitable gaming. Okay. That's, that's bingo raffles. Okay. Now a little background bingo raffles. People can, that can get a license to do that are only nonprofits. Okay, makes sense. For-profit gaming, you don't see bingo or raffles up in the casinos because they can't get the license. This is strictly for nonprofits. So uh, we're up for a sunset. Now, sunset means that the activity is completely reviewed and a report is generated showing its strengths and weaknesses, what should be kept, what should not be kept, in the statute. So this session, we have bingo raffles coming up. And obviously, we want to protect what we already have. But we're also hoping that through the study and research that the Department of Policy and Research has done on charitable gaming, that they'll see that there needs to be some changes, some modernization of charitable gaming in Colorado to compete with the other five gaming venues that are in the state. Now, the other five venues are the lottery, horse racing, off-track betting, casinos, and sports betting. Mm -hmm. And so all of those are competing for the same dollar um, and then we add bingo. That makes six. Right. So those six ven- venues are all competing for that dollar. The only one that can't respond to the changes in the culture, society, player mix, whatever, is bingo. We're, we we were authorized in 1958. There has been one change in the last 65 years for bingo. And that is, is that we can use electronic tablets so that seniors can see the bingo cards when they're playing bingo. That's it. But other than that, it's the old fashioned paper and dauber. Right. And so we're looking to try to modernize that. Secretary of State has done two reports on bingo, and both reports have said that unless it's reinvented, unless it's modernized, it will slowly dwindle and cease to exist. And what a terrible thing when 
that is such a great revenue producer for nonprofits. Right. Um, I mean, you look at the high school booster clubs that run bingo to help support buying new uniforms for the teams or buying or providing bus transportation to tournaments or whatever, whatever it may be. Or for, for example, the Chelsea Foundation, which is there to help families who have children that have epilepsy, that they can help them uh, fund the medication and everything associated with that disease. And that's all done by doing bingo. And it's no drawdown on the general fund of the of the state legislature. It's not part of the budget of the state legislature. We're not having to, our taxes aren't going to it. Right. These people are all um, independent. And it's a great way for them to go ahead and make revenue to help fund their programs, make the communities better. I, so I love, that's, that's a big one. Yeah, I love the way you presented that case. I just got a, a front row seat into how a lobbyist presents a case, you know, tying <laughs> in the, the high school uniforms and everything. Uh, that was great. But you touched on something there. You said you wanted to protect what you have. Does that mean they're also how I put this, I don't know the industry term, but I'll call it counter lobbyist. That as you're trying to change things, some other lobbying companies are trying to make things stay the same on behalf of their clients. So you are going ahead to add other lobbying firms. Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. Ah, The, the casinos do not like us. Interesting. The casinos are and powerful. So, and, and that, and unfortunately, our regulator thinks that they need to, to involve casinos when we're trying to do something for charitable gaming. Mm. Casinos don't involve us when they're trying to do something for casinos. Mm. <laughs> and here's a little, here's irony for you. If a person is at a bingo game and they win big, let's say they won a thousand bucks. Guess where they go with that thousand bucks? Uh, I'm not sure where to the casinos. Ah, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a, it could be a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship. Wait, but that's interesting. They just so leave me someone, alone. Someone puts the money. They just won. They put it at risk again by going to. Is that just by nature of the venues of where these bingos are taking place? Is close to casinos or why does that happen exactly? Well, the casinos are only in three towns. Purple yeah. Creek, Blackhawk, and uh, Central City. So bingo halls are all over the state. Right. There's uh, 12 bingo. No, there's no, we lost one again. They keep dwindling. I think we're at 10 bingo halls across the state. Plus, a lot of fraternal organizations run bingo. The American mm -hmm. Legion. Veterans of foreign wars, that type of thing. They do it in their lodges and so on. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure there are many that if they win big, they head up the hill if they're nearby. Right. Speaking of lodges and fraternities, like obviously you have a lot of people who speak conspiracy theory and they say people working like industries like the lobbying industry and particularly on the federal level are part of some of these fraternities because some of the politicians are also part of these fraternities. And that's a way 
to exert influence and to become familiar. Uh, are you a member of any of some of these fraternities? And is that an accurate statement? All those fraternals. I'm a member of the Elks. The Elks? Okay. Yeah. Been a member of the Elks for 24 years. Got it's it. a great organization. Particularly, particularly when people start to get in their golden years. <laughs> Got it. Got it. We'd like to bring in more young people because it would be really nice. But young people are are busy raising their families and working and all that stuff, all that good stuff. Got it. Well, Corky, thank you so much uh, for giving us uh, an insight into your industry, for coming on my podcast and talking a little bit about this. Uh, before I let you go, I mean, you have such a wealth of knowledge, having, you know, run your own company for, for decades, seen a lot of things. Uh, obviously, you're very good with people. I have a consulting firm that I started like a year ago. Um, we work in the CDFI space. Um, you know, we're providing like outsourced underwriting, technical assistance support, consulting services for like credit unions, community development, financial institutions. Um, a consultancy is not exactly a lobbying firm, but it's it's similar in the sense that we're both selling a service. We tend to charge the same. What's one thing you can um, advise a business owner like me, maybe something earlier in your career that you wish you had done or not done um, that you think someone like me can make my consulting firm better? I think one of the first things that I, I don't, I don't have any regrets. I mean, I've, trust me, I've made a lot of mistakes. I could be, I could be considered the poster child for mistake making. Uh, but that's the way you learn. And, mm. and that's the way you, you either sink or swim. You either learn from it and move on. Or if you let it get the best of you, then you're, you're done. You're done. So. One of the things that I would have done is I would have started my own business earlier. Mm. Um, and by that, I mean, I would have, I would have a business. I don't know what it would have been. I would have started my self-employment path a heck of a lot earlier than what I did. Because I was 32 maybe 36 when I finally got out of association stuff mm. and started the firm. And um, so I would have started earlier, number one. So you're on the right track there. And you, what was, what's that, what did that term stand for? CFIA or whatever? Uh, CDFI, Community Development Financial Institutions. Okay. And tell me more about them. Uh, so CDFIs or community development financial institutions are kind of like non-depository lenders pretty much that operate within a community or particular zip codes or within a state. Uh, they're licensed by the treasury, uh, by the CDFI fund, and they lend to primarily small businesses. Um, they do affordable housing lending. Some do small dollar personal loans as well. So they kind of like operate like a bank, but they cannot receive deposits. So most of them are nonprofits who raise money from like the Rockefeller Foundation who want to do some economic justice and things like that. And they go on to learn to like small businesses who can traditionally uh, access uh, financing from banks and other traditional 
um, businesses. Um, so they're, they're primarily lenders, but they also offer like, you know, some technical assistance services, help people with business plans, help people repair credit, things like that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, the general spiel of the industry. Well, I, um, do you have marketing materials? Do you have? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll be, I'll be happy to, to send those your way. Um, we are not a CDFI, our clients are. So we're a CDFI consulting company and, and we help those organizations, uh, CDFIs, credit unions, community banks. Uh, we, we consult for them, uh, provide do some you work. Find, do you find clients for them? Uh, we, do, we do not. So we don't broker, no. Uh, okay. I've thought about it, but we do not, not, not right now. Um, so did they... they the, the part of the business that we handle uh, doesn't typically have to do with interfacing with the borrower or anything like that. We, we just do other stuff like underwriting, some compliance stuff, uh, some general consulting stuff, because as a CDFI, there are a lot of things you have to navigate and obviously not having the resources that a bank has, um, they can't pay to have the staff power to do a lot of these things. So uh, we, as a consulting company, we come in and we, how do you make how do you make your money um just like you we charge per hour sometimes uh we tend to have retainers sometimes for for some of our clients that we do repetitive services for every month and then on the underwriting piece sometimes we charge per transaction like per loan file underwritten something like that so different ways um so you're helping the client utilize the resources of these community banks we're helping the community banks find the people to use their funds no we're not helping them find we're helping the community banks provide better services um so we're not brokering we're not helping them find people to come take loans or anything like that. We're not into that side of the business, but when people apply for loans, uh, for instance, one thing we do is to underwrite, like we help them process the loan loans, like pretty much like, like an outsourced loan officer type of thing. That's one of the services we do uh, because some of these CDFIs don't have the capacity to have an in-house loan officer. So that's a, a common thing we do, for instance, uh, amongst other things. And so they're the ones that pay you. Correct. The CDFIs are the ones that pay. Right. So you're just, you're an extension of them. Correct. And helping out their people. Correct. Wow. I didn't know that existed. See? <laughs> learn right. something new. Yeah. We learn something new every day. Like, just like I didn't know a lot about lobbying. So, you know, whenever I'll take you up on your offer on the Brown Palace, maybe we can talk more about it. I'll be... I'll be happy to, to 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 share more about the industry. But how can people reach out to you if someone has been intrigued by this conversation? Maybe they live in Colorado. Maybe they just want more knowledge. Want to invite you to speak, maybe, or maybe have a sp specific issue that they'll need help on. Want to, wants to retain you or your firm? How do people reach out to you? Well, they can email me. They can call me. They can uh, text me. I mean, I'm available. And, and we offer other services other than lobbying. <clears throat> we do a lot of training to create the awareness that they can become involved with the legislature and that they can control and manage 
what happens to them. Um, so we, we do a lot of training on that particular thing. I do a lot of speaking at um, conferences and stuff like that. Again, talking about being involved. Keep in mind that a lobbyist does a lot more than just runs legislation or keeps a, a firm in front of, or an association in front of the legislators. We are a check on the legislature mm. because we help people manage the legislature and to make what they're doing transparent. And so that's another role that we play that is often overlooked because if there weren't people like us up there doing this, God knows what we would end up with. It would be, oh, I don't know. It's scary to think about. Got it. Kind of like short sellers on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I don't understand what their role is either. But anyway. Right, right. Um, but yeah, we'll have all the information for, for Quirky in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to him, email, uh, phone numbers and all that, uh, you can just click the the notes and, and you can reach out to him directly. Um, thank you again for coming on the podcast. This has been a very educa uh, educative session for me in particular, and hopefully uh, we can do this again sometime soon. Yes, let's do it. And thank you very much for asking me on. I love talking about what I do, and I try to pull back the veil so that everybody understands just why it's so important and why it's a necessary part of the whole political process as well as the democracy that we have. Yeah, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot. All right, guys, that's been another episode of Culture Class Podcast. Please reach out to us via our website, cultureclasspodcast.com, and uh, tell us what you think about the episode. Until next time, be well. <laughs>